This is Face the Music, an electric light orchestra song-by-song podcast. Bonus tracks, listener comments, album reviews, album facts, and outtakes. I'm Eric Paul Johnson. And I'm Eric Winsenson. Before we get into the comments about Discovery... Let's cover the comments for our Out of the Blue Bonus Tracks 2 episode. I believe that was it. Troy White says, Some concluding thoughts on Out of the Blue. First, I need to revise my comments on Standing in the Rain, specifically my statement that that song should be made an extended prologue to Mr. Blue Sky, and that Big Wheels and Summer and Lightning should be removed from the concerto for a rainy day. At the time I made that comment, I had honestly forgotten about those songs, as I had not listened to the album in several years. After hearing those songs on the podcast, I remembered how good they actually were. So now I would leave the concerto intact but I still think it should have been placed on side four. Secondly, I have given up on trying to pair Out of the Blue down to a single disc. I simply cannot do it. I've tried to do the same with the White Album for years, and it needs it worse than this album does. Despite my criticism, I do like Out of the Blue overall. And as far as double albums go, this one is still a go-to album for me. I would choose Out of the Blue over the Wall or the White Album any day. I have to be in a certain frame of mind to listen to The Wall, and The White Album is, has been, and always will be overrated. So is The Wall. I can see the crowds gathering their torches and pitchforks now. One more thing, despite my criticism of this album, I would still give it three and a half stars. When it's good, it is damn good. A cheerful change from the humdrum morning fair. Well, I don't really agree about The Wall. I do find The Wall to be a much better album than this one, but I can agree about wanting to be in a certain frame of mind when you listen to it because, yeah, once you get past a lot of the great music on it, it is a rock star whining about his life. (laughs) Yeah, I would uh, hate to be in the frame of mind where The Wall matches my mood because I do love The Wall. It's a good double album. For a concept album, it's it's a good one. Um, but yeah, it's not, um, it's, it's not very perky. You don't leave it feeling like, what a wonderful time it is to be alive. You kind of feel like, oh my god, that poor guy, what a horrible life. The guy's so warped out of his gourd. I can't wait for my own death. Yeah, not any perky kind of stuff like, uh, Jungle on there. That would probably not have been the best idea for me <laughs> to, to do. <laughs> now I kind of want to hear it in the middle of the wall just for absurdity's sake.
And the White Album, yeah, it could have used some trimming. Wild Honey Pie, Revolution Number 9, a couple other th- songs. It's, uh, I think that one needs just a tiny bit more work. Doug Payton, some notes on this episode. The background music. Wow. As cheesy as the 8-bit stuff in bonus tracks past. But just not 8-bit. Truly hilarious. I guess this is some of the covers that Lisa mentioned by some adult M.O.R. orchestral group. Yeah, some of it was pipe organ playing Mr. Blue Sky. The other stuff was 8-bit stuff. And uh, the first song that we played uh, for a bed, uh, that was actually Lawrence Welk doing La Bamba. Dig that square. Back to Doug Payton. Going over the list of tracks on disc two again brings back memories. Again, after they were brought back the first time you talked about these tracks. As my daughter noticed, whom I took to the ELO concert last July, there's a certain demographic you are going to get with this podcast, and I think I'm right in the middle of it. I was in junior high school when Out of the Blue was released, and this was my soundtrack. Yes, later albums would bring in others younger than me, but I think this was ELO's pinnacle. I'm a little bit younger than you. I was 77. I was 8. Second grade? Yes, I was in second grade when Out of the Blue came out. I would have been kindergarten. I thought our demographic, though, was more aimed towards the Ozarks. Well, yes, a couple of hillbilly hosts like us, we are very popular with the inbred. Yeah! Don't let me startle you, I'm just doing the rebel yell yet. Hey guys, it's Todd calling from L.A., and I just want to comment about the latest episode and shine a little love. Did you ever stop to think that maybe the title of the album is not Discovery, but... Disco Berry, Ultra I never thought of this. Hi, this is Claudio Reedy from Miami, Florida, and I just listened to your podcast of Shine a Little Love, and I wanted to call in with my comment. I wanted to let you know I recall to today, 1979, I was a 16-year-old in Zurich, Switzerland, and I couldn't wait for this record to come out. I remember there were stacks in the record store, and I ran in and bought it, put all my money on it, and put it on the turntable. There was this odd introduction, and then the song went off. I loved it, the compressed bass and the tight drums. I recall my excitement, but also my confusion. Why did they call this record Disco Berry? I didn't think Yellow was very disco. Yellow was good, but not very disco. I had never heard of the English word discovery, so I thought it was Disco Berry. But the harmonies was just outstanding. The ooh, oh, ooh, ah, and the drum rolls. I, what a record. And my love of New World Records and Out of the Blue was totally confirmed. This was my band and still is. And the video, these guys really, really played on this video. They, you know, Kelly's tapping his foot and Kelly and Jeff are singing their hearts out. And I had platform shoes and loved the whole thing in Switzerland, believe it or not. I love the record to today. Up next, we get uh, comments about confusion. Don Field says, There's not much I can add to your discussion about the song. Lyrically, there's not much going on here, but many of the musical touches and arrangements makes it special to me. The understated choir, with no strings, by the way. The pixie dust keyboards, Bev break, etc. Coming off of panoramic hits of the day like Baker Street and Time Passages, this whimsical recording fits in snugly with these favorites. Uh, Yeah, I would say, yeah, I could hear this right between the two. I think it, yeah, absolutely fits nicely for late 70s pop hits, yeah. Oh yeah, and this one didn't do so well, did it? Only got to like 38 or something. That stinks. Lyrically, I don't know, I think there's enough going on. 
if, you know, it's about a, I guess he's being a, a friend to a guy whose heart is broken and saying, I know it sucks, but I'm here. You can lean on me. I'm here for you to lean on. I say there's more going on here than like, well, strange magic, which is really just strange magic. Oh, what a strange magic. Strange magic. Oh, whoa, whoa, whoa. Anyway, on to Need Her Love. Don Fields. I'll say this up front. This is one of two songs I don't like on Discovery. In terms of the lyrics, Telephone Line and Strange Magic have their subtle odes of love. But this, and the secret song number two, really tries too hard to emote love to the point that it becomes overweight. Too sappy for my nerves. Outside of the lyrics, Neater Love is a fine performance and production. That Moog soaring in the intro, choir bomb bomb bomb, nice touches. By the way, better than Telephone Line? You've been drinking glue? Great episode, ungreat song. Just saying. And Nicholas Sadlier says, I do prefer this song to the Battle of Marston Moor and the Hall of the Mountain King, for sure. <laughs> yeah, um, I would say pretty much almost any song wins when you put it up against Battle of Marston Moor. True. Yeah. This sucks more than anything that I've ever sucked before. Now we're going to invade Horace Wimp's privacy and read comments about the Diary of Horace Wimp. Don O said, I used to think that tracks like Mr. Blue Sky, Prologue slash Twilight, and Enter Any Xanadu track, were the very top of over-the-top ELO list. But listening to this episode, I was reminded of Horace Wimp late 70s majesty. Traits like the rapping vocoder, chanting choir, Jeff's shifting dramatic vocals, the obvious Beatles influence, the whacked-out arrangements. As I was not terribly familiar with the bonzos in my youth, I visioned a large finger coming down on Horace's head during the chorus like a piece of Terry Gilliam animation, and the choir were straight from the Lumberjack song. Personally, as a bit of an introvert myself, it's only a song, Nancy. I'm too old to tolerate adult peer pressure anyways. Just enjoy life and music like this. Oh, and that Brand Flakes cut is one of their very best. Long live the flakes! By the way, that sampling track is from the Flakes' 1998 album, I Remember When I Break Down. Just a plug, Ken. Try and keep it on. And Logan Anderson says, Just like the trend of turning song titles into movies, why hasn't there been a movie of The Diary of Horace Wimp? I keep imagining in my head a cute indie movie with Richard Kind of Spin City as Horace. At least in my movie, Making Mind, it would be kind of fun, and maybe even as empowering as Eric's digression about Horace's trying to get better every day. I love this song. It spoke to me a lot as a teenager. That's actually a, a very good idea. I never thought of Horace Wimp as a movie, and I don't know why, because it really does lay out like a movie. I mean, I've always thought Time would be a really fun movie, but I, I, I don't know why Horace Wimp never occurred to me. It could be a, it could be a nice little movie or a short. It, yeah, it absolutely could be. Get on that, Logan. I got five bucks for you to, to back your movie. So start your Kickstarter for it. Yep, yeah, and I understand about songs speaking to you as a teenager. Mine was Helter Skelter. <laughs> That's, uh, you know, maybe uh, it's, it's a good thing you, you know, kind of keep that to yourself and didn't quite start your own sort of family as a result of that song. That's true. Yeah. Mark Jealous. I think this song may be semi-autobiographical. Certainly Jeff is a shy man, wasn't keen on working a normal job, 
and left Saturday out of the diary because that's the day for football. Well, it was in 1979 anyway. So maybe in a way, Horace is Jeff, looking back at a younger version of himself. Yeah, that was kind of sort of my beef that I left out. Like, why would Jeff call this guy a wimp when Jeff clearly shows he's got some strong introvert and some shy in him too, so... And Jim Kahn says, by the way, Eric, another great podcast. Oh, well, thank you very much. I, I enjoyed that one, too. My wife yeah, did, too. so did I. The thing that kind of got onto my nerves a little bit is she laughed more at when Sensen's comments than mine, so I don't know if I have to separate you two when we meet up in November. Oh, right. This episode comes out after we've already met, so we'll see how that yes. goes. Okay. Again with Mark Jealous. Thanks, Jib. One of the greatest things about ELO is they are so good at expressing from the point of view of the introvert. Shy, however they are labeled. If it isn't the lyric, then it's the melody or the harmony, or indeed the instrumentation. I know EPJ and EW are not fans of It's Over, but I love it. Yes, they repeat the song title over again. Perhaps Jeff doesn't quite have the words or even know how to express himself because he is heartbroken. The Richard Tandy piano sums up the emotion perfectly, though, as does the background string segue at the start. Yes, it's from Mr. Blue Sky, but it puts into the sad mood for the song straight away. Um, maybe that's another reason why ELO has such a, a, a pull on me. There's the, uh, Jeff is introverted, and he, that works out into his songs, too. Corey Gomel says... A Houston radio station had a midnight listening party for Discovery the day the album came out. They played the album, but skipped Diary. Then, after the door slam of Don't Bring Me Down, the DJ got back on the air and said we saved the best for last. Other than some ELO-sounding synthesizers, it was the most Lost Beatles-sounding song ever. Jeff was at his channeling inner Lennon-McCartney best. The hairs on the back of my neck stood up. It was, and still is, an amazing song. This song created the most tired ELO trivia question ever. Why no Saturday? With the easy answer, Jeff effing hates Saturdays. JK, too many syllables. Completely agree, Eric Paul Johnson, about the name. The only negative thing about this song is Horace's last name. Horrible. I hated telling people my favorite song was Whip. How dare you, Jeff? It's just like Dave the Nose Picker. Why? And it doesn't track. If anything, he was a straight-up pimp. Meet a girl, and within a couple of days, she agrees to marry you? Horace had to be packing some serious sh**. At a minimum, that last voice from above that tells him to get a life should have addressed him as Horace Pimp. Or, all right, playa, now get a life. I know, I sounded more like a sheriff than, 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 a, than a gangster. <laughs> yeah. Again, Jeff didn't ask my opinion before release. You know, I've said that so many times during my life. How come Jeff Lynn didn't ask for my opinion, even though I was a kid at the time when most of these albums came out? Tracer Anthony, here's a fan theory that I just pulled out of thin air. The Diary of Horace Wimp is actually a spiritual sequel to the character from El Dorado. Eventually, the dreamer of El Dorado had to wake up from his fantasy world of drinking away the hours with a merry band, being seduced by painted ladies, and experiencing midnight rendezvous along the shoreline with female water sprites. 
His bank job in the city awaited him, along with the persistent threat of losing his position if he were late once more. And doesn't the voice from above strike an echo of omniscience, similar to the unearthly voice that introduces the prologue and epilogue of Eldorado? I rest my case. That's actually a pretty good fan theory. I can kind of see Horace Wimp being the guy from Eldorado. In fact, there was somebody else who thought that and wrote an entire book about it. Was it Joan Collins? No, I don't know. I think we're going to have to talk about your Joan Collins obsession at some point here. <laughs> you, she's old enough to be your great-grandmother. Ada Jones? No, not Ada Jones. Pam Van Allen. I don't know if she's that old. No, I did not say Pam Van Allen is old. Old enough to be my great-grandmother? No, I said Joan Collins is old enough to be your great-grandmother. <laughs> I think she's old enough to be everybody's great-grandmother. That's right. So now, Dr. Van Allen, if you want somebody to hit, <laughs> take your frustrations out on, you have Mr. Eric Paul Johnson over here. No. Who for some reason, thinks you're ancient and matronly. No, that's not. I got mixed up with Joan Collins and Pam Van Allen. And just to make her not at, mad at me anymore, here, I'll slip in the commercial for her book that we stopped running when we finished El Dorado. Midnight on the Water, a novel by Pam Van Allen, tells the story of Horace, a man with a bank job in the city, who escapes from his dreary, lonely life into an elaborate dream world of knights, shamans, and merry men. Based on the 1974 Electric Light Orchestra album El Dorado, Midnight on the Water by Pam Van Allen is available at Amazon.com. Are you on Facebook? Okay, sounds like you are. Make the experience more enjoyable by joining the Facebook group Jeff Lynn's Blue World. Not only can you post anything even slightly tangentially related to ELO without some tin-plated nerd with delusions of godhood blocking, deleting, or removing you, but you can win sh**! ELO calendars, ties, even tickets to Xanadu! Ah, oh, crap! Uh, not the movie, the play. <laughs> Jeff Lynn's Blue World. I thank God that dream came true! Back to ELO. Comments about Last Train to London. Mark Jealous says, Did you know that 929 is the sunset time for Birmingham, England, on the longest day of the year? I'm not sure Jeff had that in mind when he wrote the lyric, but it might be a good nerd fact. Yes, there is a little science in the show. I did not know that. 9.30 is kind of late for the sun to be setting, as from my perspective anyway. Yeah, my trip to Idaho back in the 80s, that really threw me when the sun was setting at about 11 o'clock at night. Yeah, I had the same experience when I spent a week in August up in uh, Portland, Oregon. Why, why is the sun still here? In Phoenix, the last bit of purple on the longest day is at about 8.30 at night. MJ Folds. Good episode as always. Oh, thank you. Yeah, I always think, oh, not that song. It's just boring. Then I hear it and I think, oh, it's that song. I love it. P.S. Who is Troy? And why do we have his thoughts each week for a while? Not a negative thought, just the way he's announced, like we should know who he is. Well, during, I don't know, I think it was Out of the Blue, maybe even a New World Record episodes, he would write in comments about every song. And I thought, his comments are way better than anything I'm trying to spit up in this show. I should step aside and, and maybe just let him take over. I was funnin', but I was also serious when I thought maybe he should have his own segment. 
So, Troy is a listener to the podcast who wrote such great replies and took his views of the songs to places me and Winsensen hadn't thought of. That's why there's a thought from Troy. He's also the anti-white side. Ah, yes. Yes, he is. (laughs) Say, who is that old sourpuss? Mark Herring says, Unlike Shine a Little Love, Last Train to London is a good disco song. It's a very danceable song. But I never heard it in the discos. I worked or frequented in the 1970s or 1980. By the end of 1980, most discos converted to urban cowboy clubs. If you, as if you could have thought it could ever get worse. <laughs> yeah. ELO just wasn't looked upon as a disco group and had a hard time getting played there. That will change a bit in four more weeks. Right, when ELO starts doing urban cowboy kind of stuff on their next album, Time. Yeah, that's true. I remember that's the reason I bought Time is because, you know what? I can't get enough of this country pop. Mm-hmm, yeah. 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 No, I could totally see what Mark is saying. I remember that time very well with disco fading away, and it was new wave kind of sort of creeping in, but yeah, country pop, that was what was taken over at the time. And, but fortunately, we moved on. Yeah, we're getting about the same crap now. <laughs> yes. You have no. the manufactured pop songs, and now you got country pop songs that are basically the same manufactured pop songs with a fiddle. Yeah. Although I would rather listen to anything from Urban Cowboy than Long Road Holland. What's the, I don't know the, the the big song that was a huge hit over the summer that oh, Old Town Road. That's it. Yeah. That actually wasn't bad, but that wasn't really. Well, it had Billy Ray Cyrus in yeah. it. Yeah. Yeah, it was yeah, the Lil Nas X was not the bad part of that. It was <laughs> Billy Ray Cyrus. <laughs> I just wish I hadn't heard it. Oh, God, this sucks. It even made it into Dr. Demento, and I'm just like, oh, my God. Apparently, I can't get away from this song. But anyway, Don Field says, ELO does the double down with disco with this single. I don't remember if I had a fear that my band would get bit by the disco bug, there were bad examples of this around me at the time. Hell, even Roy Orbison did a disco number. But that's for another emotional episode. I still had faith with my band, and they didn't disappoint with Shine a Little Love and this one. It had the best parts of the music of that time, and none of the bad. The only disco trait this had was the siren. <laughs> The crescendo keyboard solo added some of that discography pixie dust I love so much. I think this was the final Discovery single before the Xanadu onslaught, with its own pixie dust style. Looking back, Discovery was just a warm-up. Rich Wisniewski says, As someone who is into trains, this one is a winner with me. Even if it wasn't the train connection, this song just sounds good to me. It was great live when I saw it perform this summer. Enjoyed the Eric's discussion on this one. As for Troy, I have to disagree. Four hours is not too far to go to see one of your favorite bands. I was fortunate to see two performances this summer. One nearby, which then made me willing to drive six hours to see them again. Well, you're right. Four hours is not too far to go to see one of your favorite bands, but it can be if you can't afford to. (laughs) Yeah. Because, yeah, I remember one time I could afford to. Mm. I actually went from Phoenix to Vegas to see the residents mm-hmm. and back in the same day because, well, there was no that was the closest they were going to come at the time. And they didn't come to Phoenix ever until about uh, 2014, 2013, or 2014. Wow. So that was my only chance of seeing them. 
anywhere near Phoenix. Hmm. Before that, it had been San Francisco, but that was purposely so I could go get married, too. <laughs> yeah. So. Um, what I want to know, Rich, is why didn't you take a train if you love trains so much? Because that makes a four-hour trip <laughs> into an eight-hour nightmare. Yeah, yeah, it does. Oh, my God. I've taken Amtrak before. Yeah. Uh, I also love trains, though, so it's, I'm, I'm with you there. I think trains are pretty cool. And I don't know why, but I do love trains. I even proposed to my wife near the train tracks. And it wasn't a railroad, like, at an industrial complex or something. It's train tracks that went through northern Arizona. Beautiful mountains, beautiful pine trees, open field, there was some snow. And it's just a beautiful place. I'll post a picture of where I proposed on the uh, Face the Music Facebook page. So you can all get a look and see what I'm talking about and see that, damn. That looks wonderful. What a great place to propose. Yeah, don't worry. It's not a train track where they were sharing a can of beans over an open fire in a garbage can. No, I paid the hobos to clear out so that uh, they wouldn't make any smoochy sounds or, or kind of interfere with the moment. Right. It's not another version of Fairy Tale of New York, so. <laughs> yeah. You scumbag, you mugger, chick, chick, lousy, Christmas, Corey Gomo said. No matter where in the world I am, if I glimpse at a clock and it's displaying 929, this song automatically starts playing in my head. Is it just me? Or is there something very Mary Tyler Moore TV theme song about that really want tonight to last forever part? I absolutely love those sweeping strings in this song. Um, I hadn't thought about the Mary Tyler Moore thing, but now that you put the bug in my ear... Yeah, I can. I guess I can kind of see it, or hear it rather. And now comments about Midnight Blue. Mark Jealous says, I'm with EPJ on this one. Yes, there are similarities with Need Her Love. Well, spoiler alert, and Wishing 2. This time it's singing to the second person rather than the third. I think it holds together a bit better than NHL lyrically. National Hockey League? That's what I thought too, but oh yeah, yeah, <laughs> need, need Her Love, right. But I like them both. Logan Anderson. I'll actually admit to making a mixtape for a girl in high school with this song on it. She was a fan of the Beatles. ELO was the son of Beatles. So I thought I would have a chance. Not only did I not get a date or anything that implied she even listened to it, I don't even think she liked me. And yes, I said mixtape. I didn't have a CD burner in 20-04. I literally bought a cassette tape and gave it to a high school crush. At least I have Midnight Blue. Great song. Great show. Well, thank you for the great show. And I made mixtapes when I was in high school, too. But that's because we didn't have CD burners in the 80s. And if we did, that's true. they were extremely expensive. And I also gave out mixtapes with the same hopes that you did. But yeah, mixtapes don't get you laid at all. Yeah, well, I kind of figured that out, that maybe it was the mix, because I did Every Breath You Take, and the Tide <laughs> is High in one way or another, and for some reason, the, she got the wrong message. Mine included a lot of Tiny Tim. So, well, she probably thought you were going to give her a Tiny Tim, if that was the case. That You know, I had I didn't even think of that. I just thought maybe she would see... 
that I'm whimsically eccentric and, and fun to, and silly to be with. I guess I hadn't thought of the the other things. Well, next time I make a mixtape to woo somebody, don't tell my wife. It'll include lots of Stardust Cowboy. <laughs> Should do it. Yeah, and I will leave off Guns N' Roses used to love her this in the, in the future, so. We've learned. Yes. Yeah. Mark Herring says, as I've always said, Discovery was Jeff's in love, period. <laughs> I can see that. I love you. William Osborne, Midnight Blue is my favorite ELO love ballad. It is interesting to me that Eric W. loved Need Her Love and thought that Midnight Blue was nothing special, but quite pleasant as up until recently. I felt the exact same way, but the other way around. Didn't really care for Need Her Love until I listened to it again after your episode on it, and I've since had more appreciation for it. But yeah, something about Midnight Blue has always clicked with me. I think from the first time I listened to Discovery, I just found it strikingly heartwarming. Not usually one to gush about the love ballad songs as much, but this is honestly a personal favorite. And uh, I'd like to point out here where he said he didn't really care for Need Her Love until after listening to our podcast. So if anybody from some sort of legal team might be thinking of taking some action, just, you know, we're turning people on to ELO songs. We're doing you a favor. We're helping you. So instead of suing us, hey, just, just hire us. Cover all the, uh, all the licensing costs or whatever. Yep, all the Coke and Hooker's expenses that we have. Well, Mayan is Legos and chocolates, so... Yeah, that's true. Mine's just records. Yeah. Nerd! Tracer Anthony says, Wow, for over 80 episodes, I never remember Madeline sounding so angry towards a song. Yikes! Yeah, she sounded like she really hated that song. Um, but I didn't listen to the episode to see how she reacted. I know she did not like From the Sun to the Universe. And when we sat down for her to listen to it to give whether she liked it or hated it, it took so much effort to get her to sit there and listen to that eight-minute whatever song. Uh, Just from the start, she didn't want to hear it. So she was in no mood to hear it. So whether she actually hates Midnight Blue as much as she said, or she was just emphasizing for comedic purposes, I don't know. But in ten years, when we go through all the songs and see what she thinks then... See if she still hates it or likes it. She'll hate everything. She'll she'll be a 16-year-old girl, and I'm her stepdad, making her listen to dad's music and telling me what she thinks. So, yeah, she probably will. I don't like this. I don't like this at all. Now, On the Run, Don Fields wrote, On the Run is a fun track with nonsensical lyrics. That Morse code crescendo flying through this recording adds to the fun of the whole deal. Though I wouldn't be surprised if somebody compared it to tsetse flies buzzing around their heads. You can only push that level of giddiness too far. Hell, I get enough of those flies from Martin Denny records. The bonus track featuring an early version is an interesting behind-the-curtain view on how this and the rest of Jeff's songs work. A special note to Troy to suck it up, buttercup. Xanadu is a-coming. And Hungry Sponge... Okay. ...says, Another wonderful podcast. Though, why you include reviews by Andrew Whiteside is beyond me. Thank you. I'm glad you like it. As for Andrew Whiteside, we've recorded all the episodes for Xanadu. And there comes a point where, you know, I'm just tired of including him. So, true. for now anyway, maybe I'll change my mind later on after we've had a break from Andrew Whiteside's snottiness. Eric brings up the name and I'm just like, who? 
but I did include him because I don't want this podcast to be gushing about Jeff Lynn and ELO. I don't mind if there's an alternative opinion. I'd like there to be one where somebody says, yeah, I didn't like this song. I don't want it all to be, that was a great song. That was a great song. It actually kind of scares me a little. The people who say that they love everything that musician, movie maker, writer, when they say that they love everything that they've ever done, there's never been a bad whatever. I just always think of What's-Her-Face from Misery. I'm your number one fan. It's just kind of creepy if in a vast discography that Jeff has, and you can't point to one song and say, eh, that's not really one of his best. It's kind of like, Jeff Lynn's farts sound like a symphony, and on top of that, they smell like cinnamon rolls. Ooh, that's creepy! Even the Beatles, Frank Sinatra, Elvis Presley. Elvis Presley did a version of Old MacDonald. Of course, he did a lot of bad stuff through the 60s yeah, and I'll 70s. Say, uh, Elvis Presley had the 1960s. Yeah, and uh, in the 70s. But I mean, even the Beatles. Nobody is perfect. Nobody puts out every single song is just great. Revolution 9 is a train wreck. There is a place by the Beatles. I don't like it. There's a Beatles song I don't remember the title to, but the first time I heard it, I laughed and shook my head because the first line is, I love you. Woo, 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 woo. And I'm just like, oh my God. You're a 23-year-old married man, John Lennon. Those are the lyrics you're writing? Sounds like something a 12-year-old boy writes to his new girlfriend in a love note. Nobody's perfect. Beatles didn't do good songs. ELO, Jeff Lynne. I like the vast majority of his work, but there is some stuff there that is not all that great. So that's why I don't want this podcast to be just two people, or even just one person, just thinking that everything Jeff has done is dreamy. That's why I included uh, Andrew. But I'm getting tired of his snottiness, so taking a break from Andrew unless he has something nice to say about ELO. True. Just shut your big yapper! On to comments about wishing. Don Field says, this is the third ballad of Discovery, but unlike the first two, it isn't as sugary as Lot. Even though he kind of pushes his luck with the line, you and California call me in this song, Jeff doesn't get carried away with emotion and concentrates on the music and production. The rhythm arrangements are bouncy and carries the song very well. Vocoder use blends in evenly, and the second break before the final chorus is a bit of a highlight that helps point out the fine and fantastical production that made Discovery a fine album from the late 70s. Yes, love is still in the air thus far in this album, but this lands nicely compared to the thuds from the first two slow unjams. Don Fields is, uh, writes some pretty good song reviews. Yes, he does. I, um, I guess if something happens to Troy, an unfortunate accident, we can have Don come in with uh, a thought from Don, because he's pretty good at this. Maybe he should take my place. But now, if something unfortunate happens to Troy, Don's going to be the first on our list of suspects. I'm just putting things out there. I'm not looking for anybody to, uh, you know, do anything. True. Logan Anderson, funny that you mentioned modern music is all riffs and samples. ELO has actually been used in a rap song, and it's actually wishing. But I think it's a rare case where the sampling works. I'm not the biggest fan of rap music, but when it's great, it can be amazing. And I think using ELO for that is more remarkable to me than pussycat dolls using evil woman samples. Just my two cents. 
Uh, yeah, other than discovery that there's a porn movie using a lot of ELO songs, the other surprising thing that I found out since doing this podcast is that there's been a lot of rap music that is sampled from ELO, which I never saw coming, because I just never really saw... Well, not only never saw ELO being able to be worked its way into rap music, but that rappers had any idea who ELO was. When they started celebrating the anniversary of hip-hop a little while back, I was surprised to find out some of the original albums that samples were coming from, including Billy Squire's first album, where they would get drum beats and certain samples and everything off of things. And it's, yeah, it was a surprising mix of a whole bunch of different things that went into making early hip-hop songs, and then, yeah, that just kind of bled into down the road where they do that. Mm -hmm. However, I don't hear the sampling as much anymore, to tell you the truth. All I hear is just usually a very simple beat, and a lot of times they had to pay somebody for that beat. (laughs) If you have the equipment, you can make tons of money by doing that. Well, I can see if it was used, the beat from The Stroke, just loop that first couple of before Billy starts singing, But the things that I've come across, like Wishing and there are other hidden ELO album tracks that I've come across that that rappers have sampled from. And I'm just kind of like, where did you hear Above the Clouds? Did your parents listen to ELO? How did this fall into your music world? It's probably not the actual person doing the rapping that came up with it. It's their producer. Mm -hmm. And I don't know if Above the Clouds was used. I just grabbed a random hidden ELO track. But there have been some that have just like... I, I Nobody's Child. That one was used in a rap song. It's like, how, how did you become aware of that hidden song from El Dorado? It's good that you know it. And it's good that ELO is getting out there to people who listen to rap music who would never even think... They'd look at it and think, ah, orchestra, classical music... I need some fat beats, not not strings and opera. Okay, Tony Peterson says, This song is queued up as my alarm clock every morning. Huh? That's a nice gentle way to be woken up every morning. My alarm isn't quite so soothing. Wake up! Rich Wisniewski. One, I like the song. Two, Eric W. mentioned Andrew Whiteside's comments, but I didn't hear them in the song facts segment. Did they get cut? Three, I guess Troy doesn't like Steve Miller. Four, please bring back a great line segment. Five, keep up the good work. One, I I like it too. Two, Whiteside's comments probably weren't in the song facts. I didn't listen to it before we started this, but he probably just brought up Andrew's comments and that's where it came from. Three, he probably does like Steve Miller. I don't know. I like Steve Miller, although sometimes he does get a little silly with his word twisting to make things rhyme. What is a pompatus? Nothing more than probably to make something rhyme. But I still think the Joker's a great song. Four, fret not. It's coming back. Uh, The guy who does the Great Line segment, George Leonberger, had too many things going on for him to do the segments for Discovery, which I was sad about and I did miss. But we've finished recording all our stuff for Xanadu. He's in all of those. We've only just started the barely basic work for Prologue. And he's already got his Great Line segments done up until... For all of Side 1 of time. So it's coming back and it'll be back for a while. Five? Thank you! I figured it was probably he had something else going or ran out of 
the ability to do it. Yeah, I mean, there's so much production work that's put on it that he fell behind and he just wasn't able to catch up. So he said he was sitting out Discovery. Maybe he'd come back for Xanadu. I told him, I, we're about to start Xanadu. Are you coming back? I hope so. And he just unloaded. And it's, as usual, it's a lot of great stuff. So crisp, so succulent, you'll want it every night of the week. Comments for Don't Bring Me Down. Alan Walker says, How many of you hear Don't Bring Me Down when you hear the Moody Blues Evening Twilight Time off the Days of Future Past album? The question of whether bits are nicked from other songs comes down to each artist's interpretation if a bit is similar and if they want to sue. I don't see much of a uh, similarity to Twilight Time. I do. I listened to it like about an hour before we started this. It's about six and a half minutes long and I'm like, I don't hear it. I don't hear it. And then somewhere around three and a half, four minutes, there's a tiny segment where it's like, yeah, I hear it now. I haven't listened to the album in forever, but yeah, I don't remember it sounding, at least the chorus and everything, I, I remember sounding quite a bit different than Don't Bring Me Down. Don't Bring Me Down sounds like an updated T-Rex song. To me, it does. I can see that. Oh, and before I forget, the door slam at the end of Don't Bring Me Down, I don't think this came up when we did the episode, but I always thought it was a jukebox putting the record back. In the video for Don't Bring Me Down, there's a scene of a jukebox with the ELO spaceship flying out, and then the album's over, the jukebox is putting the record back in with the other records. Don Fields. Some years ago, I mixed segments of all of DBMD remixes I had and edited them together into a continuous track lasting 49 minutes, ending with an explosion from a Monty Python record with the title, Don't Bring Me Earplugs. Slapping this together, I realized how iconic this tune is. This fact was confirmed when YouTube pulled my mix offline. Anyways, this track was a great way to finish off Discovery. After all the ballads, disco, and whatnot that Jeff was toying with, and us more opinionated fans pig squealing about it. He finally boils it all down to good old-fashioned, though slightly polished, no complaints here, rock and roll. Quite the fitting fantastical ending to a grand fantastical album. And more fantastic, fantastical fun up ahead. P.S. Eric, uh, this be me, Eric, I know the struggle between pop music and Don't Bring Me Down, as I picked the M single for purchase when I was a kid. But that's okay as pop music expressed the religious feeling of pop music itself more directly than Don't Bring Me Down. So I can live with that. And Mark Jellis says, I always thought this was basically a Jeff solo track with sampled Bev drums. Not so. Thanks for the update. It managed to lift me up. There you go. Informing everybody. And he sneaks in a coy reference to a song from Jeff Lynn's solo album, Armchair Theater. Not Zoom, or From Out of Nowhere, or Alone in the Universe. Anyway, Mark Herring. Now this song isn't a disco song, but this song was the ELO song played in discos. It was perfect to play after a number of fast-moving disco songs where the hot dancers showed their stuff, and it acted as a switch-up to bring the not-so-good dancers out on the floor for some fun before going to a slow song or two so everyone could catch a breath and spend money at the bar before cranking up the beat again. It's just a song that almost anyone can easily dance to, and boy they did. And as everybody ran to the bathroom um, mm. with mirrors, 
just to check how they were looking and everything. Well, yeah, after know? all yeah. that dancing and sweating, you got to make sure yeah, your yeah. hair still you, looks you gotta good. you got to make sure that... Hair. Exactly. Yeah, yeah, there wouldn't be anything else they'd be taking their own mirrors into the bathroom for. Not that I can think of, but I'm kind of naive about a lot of things, so... Nice man, that kid. Just a little on the dumb side. Pam Van Allen. BMI stands for Broadcast Music Incorporated, not Broadcast Music Industry. I can't understand what she says next. A million Arab certificate? Love and monsters, not love monsters. Donnie Brasco, not Brosco. It was definitely a drum loop from On the Run, not Confusion. You're remembering that wrong. Well, I looked up BMI before I wrote down the song facts, and I saw Broadcast Music Industry. Could be Broadcast Music Incorporated. Yeah, it is. She's right. It, it is? is Broadcast okay. Music Incorporated. Then I don't know why I saw it. Yeah, industry. it's a publishing company, yeah. not uh, like the RIA. Right. No, I know it's a publishing company. I came across industry. I understand what she's saying. I hear a million airplay certificate. With a million airplay certificate. She does say love and monsters. She just glides by the and pretty fast. Love and monsters. And as for Brasco, Lisa has a bit of an accent, so lighten up. I always called Donnie Brasco as well. Oh, did you? I've always called it Brasco. Yeah, I, w- I always <laughs> I always refer to it as Donnie Brasco. I'm uh, when I when it comes to the movie. Well, Dr. Van Allen says you're saying it wrong. You got it wrong! Hello, this is Troy White with a thought from Troy. Bonus tracks, Discovery. One of the first box sets I remember seeing in a record store was around Christmas of 1980. The store was Musicland, and the box set was by ELO. It contained a new world record, Out of the Blue, and Discovery on vinyl. And it also contained a bonus 45, a solo song by Jeff Lynne called Doing That Crazy Thing. Now, I really wanted that box set. I already had Discovery on vinyl, but I didn't have Out of the Blue or New World Record on vinyl. I had them on 8-track. And I also wanted that 45. Here's the problem. The box set retailed for about 80 bucks, and I knew there was no way my mother could afford that. And I also knew there was no way my job of selling Christmas cards door-to-door, I could save up enough money from that job to buy it. And by the time I had a job where I was making enough money to buy it, of course, being a box set, it was out of print. So I never did get to hear that 45. I don't think it was released outside of the box set, so it never charted. And so I never got to hear Casey Kasem announce it on American Top 40. So I'm just wondering, was it a good song? Did anybody get that box set? Does anybody have that 45? Was it good? I don't know. I will say this much, though. If you have that box set, I don't know if the box set itself is worth any money. But if the 45 is in good condition, or even mint condition, you might be able to get a hunk of change for it. Again, I don't appraise records, but I'm just curious. How was doing that crazy thing? This has been a thought from Troy. The box set was called A Box of Their Best, released on August 7th, 1980. I got it for 20 bucks new in the mid-80s. Doing That Crazy Thing was released as a single in 1977, with Going Down to Rio as the B-side. It didn't chart anywhere. A one-sided single was stuck in some of the box sets. Mine didn't have it. A friend gave me the 12-inch in 1986. Many years later, she came across a one-sided promo single of Crazy and gave it to me. 
According to Discogs, the box set ranges from $9.98 to $43.33. First release US single for Crazy goes from $1.11 to $5. The promo is as high as $11. The 12-inch goes for $2. As for the song, not one of Jeff's better moments. You can find it on YouTube. Keep your expectations low. Andrew Openlander. I was initially disappointed in this album when it came out. I lived in Chicago, home of the disco demolition. I always considered it the bastard stepchild in my ELO collection, LOL. I was a petty kid, LOL. But the girls loved this record, and time eventually healed all, and later on I learned to appreciate it for what it was. Still a lot of great songs on it. So, were you the same way about Discovery, Eric? Did you think, ugh, but then, you know, you got over it? No, I liked it from the very beginning. Mm-hmm. First time I heard it, I really liked the album. I still really like it. I think it fits in well with the rest of what they were doing, and I think it really accentuates why I had a problem with Out of the Blue. <laughs> ELO works good in a single album doses. Yeah. Jeff Lynne gets ideas, he does a bunch of stuff, he gets enough stuff out there for the album, you try and stretch him any further, then you got B-sides, which some of his B-sides are good, some of them are not, but having an entire extra album's worth of B-sides thrown in with the good stuff doesn't exactly work. I have Discovery on the same, about the same level as a New World Record, um, even though I, knew, I do like a New World Record a little bit better, mm-hmm. but they're still both four-star albums. This was actually the first ELO album that I heard all the way through. As I said in some episodes, I, I saw the video album before I ever had the record album, like three or four years before I got the album. And I loved it right off. I thought it was freaking great. And I think you're right. I think that's maybe that's the flaw with Out of the Blue for me. I'm sure, Jeff Lynne has his sound and his, his formula, but when you try and stretch that formula out for too long, it's kind of like, hmm, okay. My beef with Out of the Blue, I said, was it seemed too polished. But Discovery is much more polished than Out of the Blue, and I freaking love Discovery way much more than Out of the Blue. If we're doing four stars, although I think we've been doing five, uh, Discovery is definitely a five-star album. Of the four ELO albums that are just some of the greatest albums ever, El Dorado, A New World Record, and Discovery is the third of those. That is a perfect album that I never, ever, ever get tired of listening to, and there's not a bad song on it. It's it's a great freaking album. Yeah, I don't have any problem with... I, I mean, I think some of the songs on here are better than others, but... Yeah, there's not anything on here that's not listenable. Yeah. Even the ones that I think that are just kind of, oh, they're there. But but they're still listenable songs. It's still enjoyable when you're listening to the album. You don't want to all of a sudden just skip over anything on there. Mm-hmm. Every song hits. The disco ones are really great. The ballads are dreamy and swoon-worthy. And the fun poppy songs like Horace Wimp and On the Run and are fun and they're great to listen to. And Don't Bring Me Down is a straight-up stone-cold catchy rock song that I never get tired of after 40 years of listening to it. So yeah, He does more of a variation of sound on here than he does on Out of the Blue. Yeah, he does. Shows more of what he can do. and It's it's a bigger variety and he does it all in one album. Yeah. I mean, his most ambitious albums, El Dorado and Time, Mm -hmm. stayed in one album. And I just think that he stretched... Out of the blue to two just because everybody else was doing it and this is why you don't just do stuff because everybody else <laughs> is doing it we're gonna have to do an after-school special someday about why you do not do 75 minute recordings 
Yeah. Because people, unfortunately, have had a habit of doing that since CDs came out. And mm. uh, they never learned the lesson from yeah. people like Chicago or <laughs> Electric Light Orchestra that you only need the good stuff on the album. That's where we got with Discovery. We got nothing but good stuff. Yeah. And that's the reason I've heard Jeff give for why there are 8 and 11 minute songs on the second album. And it was because, well, that was the style at the time. The style isn't always good. I wore an onion on my belt because that was the (laughs) style at the time. Oh, you too? Discovery was the eighth studio album from Electric Light Orchestra and was released in the United Kingdom on May 31st, 1979. And shortly after, on June 8th, 1979, it was released in the United States. The album became the first number one Electric Light Orchestra album in the United Kingdom and also went to number one in Australia and Norway. In the United States, it did similarly to its biggest single, Don't Bring Me Down, getting just one place lower than that single did, making it up to number five on the Billboard 200 and on Cashbox. In Austria, Canada, and the Netherlands, it reached number three. It reached number two in France and Sweden, and made it up to number seven on the West German charts, but only made it up to number 31 in Japan, even though it got all the way up to number four in Italy. And it became the first album to generate four top ten singles in the UK. The album was one of the biggest releases of the band's career and was certified double platinum by the RIAA in 1997. The album is also notable for the fact that Mick Kaminsky, Hugh McDowell, and Melvin Gale, who typically played strings on many of the previous Electric Light Orchestra albums, were not to be found on the studio tracks, even though they still appeared in the videos for the album. Discovery was remastered in 2001 and released with a number of bonus tracks, including a version of Del Shannon's Little Town Flirt, as well as demos of On The Run and a song called Second Time Around. Do you love Xanadu without fear of being shunned by humanity? We're here! We We like Xanadu! Then roller skate to the Xanadu Preservation Society site at oddlystupid.wixsite.com slash Xanadu. It's an online warehouse of pictures, audio interviews, short essays, remixes, and a crate load of extras about one of the most maligned, yet somewhat enjoyable movies of the 80s. Make your Xanadu dreams come true at oddlystupid.wixsite.com slash Xanadu. Xanadu, 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 Xanadu. Those letters, I love those letters. couple of comments from our favorite haters. Elaine Dubois, Mr. Johnson, I don't really care about your podcasts as your co-host with the bad voice is sarcastic and always finds ways to bash ELO. No wonder why you have so few listeners. Well, God forbid anybody be sarcastic. That would just be so annoying. People going to knock it off. Yeah, immediately. Yeah. I'm not sarcastic. I'm just keeping it real. You're sardonic, man. There's a difference. (laughs) I'm snarky. Yes. John Williamson says, Eric Paul Johnson. 
Your podcasts are pure trash, with your mate being so negative on Jeff Lynn and ELO material. Hillbillies like you, with nothing to do but to bash people, need to be blocked. Adios. Ah. <laughs> I have no idea what AH is. Yeah, I, I don't know. <laughs> They keep to seem to keep yeah, harping on. He sent on. the same message to both of us, and yeah. uh, my attitude was because I, I had no idea who in the world he was. Yeah. Uh-huh. So as soon as I saw people like you deserve to be blocked, I blocked him because I oh okay well save you the trouble. Yeah, yeah. We covered the hillbilly thing last time. Uh, it still applies. I still haven't boinked my sister or gotten blind drunk on moonshine or anything Dude. like that. Uh, they seem to keep harping on that nobody listens. Well. I run the numbers every week. I add them up uh, from Podbean, Podomatic, Stitcher, Mixcloud, YouTube. And as of Sunday, December 15th, 2019, we were at a combined total of 58,657 listens. So, again, that's a lot of people who aren't listening to our podcast. True. And another thing I hear from haters is that we bash ELO. That's all our little podcast is. We just slam on ELO and how terrible they are. Well, after his comments from the Out of the Blue Part 2 bonus tracks episode, I went through every episode. By the way, apologies for those early episodes where I was playing around with Eric's audio, trying to match things with my audio and maybe make it sound better, and all I did was wind up making him really distorty. Just suffer through the first, I think, two albums where I screwed all that up. And But as you can hear now, when Sensen's audio got much better, when I stopped trying to balance it out so much that it's always on an even level. It also got much better when I found out what was wrong with my computer and why everything seemed to be turned up into the red all the time. And I couldn't find what in the world the problem was when I had adjusted everything. There was that too. So if you're yes. just joining us now suffer through those early episodes. Things got much better. But I went through and I listened to every episode and I made a Google Documents spreadsheet. It's online. I'll post a link at the Face the Music Facebook page. I'll add it for the show description. I made a Wisconsin column. I made an EPJ column and I made a Madeline column. And for each song that we've covered so far, there's like, hated, okay. The green boxes shows that we like it. Red box, hated it, and I think yellow is so-so. We thought it was okay. And going through that chart, there is a ton of green boxes, a smattering of red, and a little bit of yellow. I can say all I want, oh, we don't bash yellow, but the haters are going to be like, "Uh uh-uh. Well, I have proof now. There's documented proof right there. Spoiler warning. It covers episodes that haven't been posted yet, so if you want to be surprised about what we think about songs from Xanadu and Time, don't look past Don't Bring Me Down. And if you still don't believe it, just listen to every episode. Use all the extra hits we can get. We're closing in on 60,000, so help bump that up, Elaine and John. Well, no, John's probably not going to hear from me because, well, of course, I blocked him. So, (laughs) (laughs) And I'm sure he's blocked me, so he's not going to see any of the posts that I make to all the ELO Facebook pages of, you know, here's the latest episode, listen. After their comments, Judy Weinstein-Faber said, Y'all are awesome! Well, thank you, Judy. I I think we are, too. And we think you're awesome as well. I absolutely. That's Mike's wife, and Mike's awesome, so his wife has to be awesome, too. Everybody loves you, and so do I. (laughs) 
If you donate to the podcast through our Patreon site, patreon.com slash ELOPod, you can get bumper stickers, produce an episode, or for just $1 per episode, $4 a month, you can hear shows a week before they're released to the world. Or skip all that and just hand it over directly through PayPal using the email address ELOFTMpodcast at gmail.com. People donated at least $1 to the podcast through patreon.com slash ELOPod. Andrew Clarkson, Don O, Frederick Sko, James Crow, Jill Chenault, Michael Mullen, Petty Officer Scoop, RJ Richards, and the ESO Network. And a holy crap! Thanks to Corey Gomel, who contributed through our PayPal using the address ELOFTMpodcast at gmail.com. And an extra thanks to Stephen St. John for the Don't Bring Me Down music bed. If you'd like to make an instrumental of an ELO song for us to use on our bonus tracks episodes, send it to ELOFTMPodcast at gmail.com. And now, outtakes. Confusion. Because there's no way in ni- late 1986 that KZZ... Somebody have an accident? No, that's a lawnmower. <laughs> Great, because um, because there's that's no... why I'm looking disgustedly towards my window. Yeah, because <laughs> there's no. And I I really have no idea what the other guy in the video was supposed to be doing, other than just hanging around. I mean, that usually uh, that's the point where you start slipping notes to the woman, going, "Are you okay?" <laughs> Well, they were husband. And uh, wife. They were husband and wife duo. So yeah, yeah. tap twice on the counter if we need to dial nine one one. Yeah, uh. need her love. This is face the music. All right, serious up now. Guitar solos, guitarists, guitarists, chorus, Horace wimp. It's pretty clear that Horace has social anxiety disorder. And there are a lot of things about Horace that I can relate to, whether I want to or not. I can totally, yeah, I feel you, Horace. I get you. So I, I, I'm a painfully shy introvert, so I totally get where Horace is coming from. There are people out there, and uh, they're unpredictable, and they can be mean. And really, you just want to stay inside and not have to deal with people. But you kind of got to, because you got to go to work, and you got to go shopping, and you got to go to school. And there are people out there. You totally pick up on the vibe from them. Oh, yeah, him. Meek little Horace or Eric. (laughs) Conversations are kind of awkward when really you don't really want to talk, but you're trying to be nice and they're just talking and you're kind of like, uh-huh. Or there's awkward silence. And then Jeff goes along and gives this nice little man the surname Wimp, which just kind of adds to the piling on of painfully shy, socially inept, introverted goobers like me. Um, but, I see, people don't really understand what's going on in there. Just because they kind of reclusive, or they kind of don't, you know, jump in at conversations, they just think, oh, what a wuss, what a wimp. 
Um, they don't quite seem to understand the uh, intestinal fortitude it takes just to get yourself out of bed and actually have to go out there and deal with the humans. So, I don't think Jeff helps things by labeling this shy little guy Wimp. And I also feel like there's a bit of betrayal here from Jeff. I may be projecting, but I always got the vibe that Jeff has uh, probably quite a bit of introversion in him. At least definitely a, a hefty smattering. He doesn't like touring. He doesn't like doing concerts. At least he didn't back then. Um, he would have much rather just stayed in the studio, played with all the widgets, made music, and, you know, hung out with his friends doing the recordings. He hates do hated doing interviews. And even when he did interviews, he was... Nice, kind of quiet. He's never been a fireball of energy. On stage, he just stands there, plays his guitar, and sings while the, I guess, the show of the whole thing comes from the light show. So it's kind of like, I, why are you calling this guy a wimp, Jeff? There are some introverted traits that Horace has that you must also get. So The reason that Saturday was omitted from the song, according to Jeff Lynn because Saturday is the day that the football match is played. So I guess watching a football game is more important than pursuing the woman he loves. Well, at least uh, <laughs> I don't know very many guys who would get married on the day that an important game is uh, being played. Well, you should probably see a doctor if it's up for more than four hours. Um, so I think the... You know, especially with ELO songs, because there's so much that goes on in an ELO song that, unfortunately, sometimes they have to use tapes to fill in those holes. But this live version, it's even though it's, you know, stripped down to what they can do with the band that's on stage, which is a pretty good band, um, I think it equals the stu- yeah, it sounds like one one video I watched recently where a guy, he's had about 13 years of piano lessons, can play pretty decently. Mm -hmm. All of a sudden, reviewing a, um, watch, watching an old video of uh, a jazz player playing piano, he's going, yeah. oh, um, I can do that. <laughs> he, Plunk. <laughs> yeah, yeah. Or what I like to say, kind of like, yeah, where, where you swear that the guy had, where, where you swear that the jazz player had three hands and an extra, an extra set of keys on the, mm -hmm. for whatever he was doing. Mm -hmm. Or what I like to say, I, I could play just like that, but I don't want to show off. Exactly. That, yeah. that's exactly it. Yeah. I can play exactly like, uh, I, I can play exactly like Bev Bevan on that drum, mm -hmm. but yeah, I don't, I don't want to show off. Yeah. No, I don't want to. Uh, I don't yeah. want. I don't want to make people struggling feel worse about their skills, so I'm just going to yep. keep it to me, myself. Me embarrassing Neil Peart on a disco song. <laughs> What's basically a disco song? Yeah. That. <laughs> yeah. Yeah. I can barely keep, keep rhythm with a spoon. Yeah. Uh, <laughs> it is wonderful. In fact, it sounds like something Giorgio Moroder would have been producing at the same time, mm -hmm. which doesn't surprise me because I think Flood was still one of the engineers on this particular album. And Flood uh, is uh, somebody who worked with Marauder often, off and on as well. Okay. So, um, so it doesn't surprise me that they're able to still get that uh, Marauder uh, late '70s disco sound out of this. If right. you're wondering what I'm referring to, that's mainly Donna Summer. Yeah. That backing you have on Donna Summer, not the Italian version of disco, but more the uh, your uh, the the regular European and American versions that you would hear. Right. Okay.
We're at ten and a half minutes. Okay. Oh, that's not the pause button. It sort of reminds me of Kisses, I Was Made for Loving You, which also came out in 1979. Now, I know the two Eric's don't really like Kiss, but I'm a big Kiss fan, have been all my life. And I Was Made for Loving You is the one Kiss song that kind of makes me go, meh. Um, I just, the disco arrangement again, it's too distracting. Now, I have seen them perform it live, and they really kick it live, but on the record, not so much. When they could come to either Indianapolis or Fort Wayne, I live within an hour's drive of both of those places, and they both have excellent venues that could accommodate ELO. And people got out there and skated and they danced, and it almost made me want to get put on some skates and risk falling on my butt. Especially when they would all get in a line, like the song The Locomotion, and kind of form a train, and then they would kick out their legs like a sidekick, like they were the Rockettes. On the run. Stuff, and it's, it's also cool. It's a, it's a cool different take on the song. And unlike uh, Ms. Carlos, Jeff Lynn will actually let you listen to, her, li- listen to his music. She won't do that? I got, I got a YouTube takedown for ah, copyright. My only you. YouTube takedown for copyright, because... <laughs> Yeah, I love it when artists just don't want anybody to ever hear their music for some stupid reason. Yeah, I never understood that since YouTube will direct any money made from advertising that pops up on that song to the copyright holder. So Exactly. Yep. Wishing. It's you this week. Okay. <laughs> Hi, I'm Eric Winsenson. And I'm Eric Paul Johnson. And we reach the end of discovery uh almost almost okay so let's try this again <laughs> <laughs> okay so we uh reach a nice little um yeah i've never been crazy about madonna maybe i i probably count the number of madonna songs that i like on one hand and still lop off a couple of fingers and have some extra left over but yeah sure there were keyboards and synthesizers but obviously um, it was by people who knew how to play keyboards. It wasn't just push a button and here we go. And bass players, you got drummers. Sure. They, they had real musicians that played instruments, even though I wasn't crazy about the music. But still, there were people there with talent who put it together. Instead of just push this button, go. Face the Music, an Electric Light Orchestra song-by-song podcast, is a production of Radio Trolla Entertainment, Assorted Deli Meets Amalgamated. You can contact us by voicemail at 623-850-3375 or email us at eloftmpodcast at gmail.com. Keep up to date on the show by joining our Facebook group and spread the word by sharing the link or giving us a quick rating on iTunes. You can financially support the podcast at patreon.com slash ELO pod. Next week, episode 085, I'm Alive.